readings today, two from Genesis and one from Ephesians. Our first reading is from Genesis chapter 2 and it can be found on page 4 of the Church Bibles. Uh, So Genesis chapter 2 and beginning at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then moving over to chapter three and beginning at verse one. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? And we're now going to move across to Ephesians chapter four which is on page 1,175. And we're going to be reading from verses 17 to 24. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught with him, taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you want to turn back to page four, uh, to Genesis, as we come uh, to look at these Uh, This passage, that's where we'll spend uh, most of our time this morning. Now, if you were here last week, maybe you were here as we 
as we looked at an earlier bit of Genesis, do you remember at the beginning of the sermon Steve was preaching, he said, imagine you came to church and he kicked you. Do you remember that? When he said that last week, Steve uh, on the staff here said, imagine you came to church and he kicked you. And he said it would, it would matter greatly what you heard next, uh, whether Steve said it was an accident or whether it was deliberate. Um, wasn't the first thing I thought. I thought, first of all, I'd like to see you try. That's why I thought. Um, and then I thought, well, I mean, Steve's nice. He wouldn't kick you, would he? But the reason the story hooks you, or a little illustration like that hooks you, when Steve said it, it made everyone sit up, didn't it, when he said, imagine you came and I kicked you. The reason it hooks you is because it's not impossible, is it? And you began to imagine it. It's not impossible because nice people can do mean things. You know that because you're nice, aren't you? I mean, you're nice. And yet you've done... You've done all sorts of things, haven't you? You've really done all sorts of things that are really not nice. Humanity's confusing, isn't it? You begin to hold those things together. Uh, those of you who are maybe still at school, maybe you're doing GCSEs or A-levels, you might be having to do a bit of Shakespeare in English uh, for your exams. Maybe you come across one of the plays. Uh, Shakespeare is on to this kind of confusing nature of humanity in Hamlet. Do you remember these lines, if you've read it? He, he says this, what a piece of work is, is a man. He's, he's meaning is like a bit of artwork. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel. The beauty of the world. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, no, nor woman neither. You get what Shakespeare's getting at when he, when he said, maybe you, you see Mark playing, Mark playing uh, the, the clarinet, the saxophone, and you think in action, how like an angel. <laughs> you watch him doing that. Or you, maybe you've been watching the tennis and you see an Andy Murray and uh, an Emma Raducanu and they, they play just one of those glorious backhands and you see the way the body moves. The speed of the ball that's coming at them, somehow they made eye contact with it. And they, they don't just see it. The, the timing is perfect as they hit the shot down and it lands right on the line. And you think, in action, how like an angel? How are you able to do that? And then you catch the news and there's another policeman who's attacked all those women. And you think, man delights, not me. How do you get a handle on humanity? How do you figure out what's going on? How can people be like angels and, and do these terrible things? And the Bible would give an answer in, in one word. It would say, sin. If, you, if you're going to really understand authentic humanity, the way we are now, you've got to begin to grapple with this idea of sin. So we're, we're going to think about that for a little bit this morning. Maybe give a, a sort of definition to it. Think about the extent to which it runs. And then also think about how the Bible speaks about how sin can be fixed. Here's the first thing. Just by way of definition, sin is, look, it's breaking God's command. 
Just have that idea in mind. We've seen in Genesis, God made a wonderful world. Uh, He made people to rule over it as God's image bearers. Steve was talking about that last week. And we, we just heard in the reading that Don read for us, God gave one prohibition. Back in chapter 2 and verse 16, God says this, you are free to eat from, the tree, from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Adam was to feast in the whole garden. He could feast in the whole garden and just fast from just this one tree from the fruit on it. And you understand this command, what, what's going on with it? it? It signifies God's authority as God. It's to, to help keep this distinction between him as the creator and us as creatures. If you're going to, to live and join the life that God gives, you've got to remember that he's God. And so as Calvin says, God put into the world a test of obedience. Will people trust and obey God's word? The, the word that made them, the word that orders life. And we read what happened. Chapter 3 and verse 1, the snake, we understand is Satan, He comes to Eve with a sneaky question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And you hear, and you might know this passage well, you you hear how Eve replies in in verse 2. She says this, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, as you think about that, let me tell you about the criminal activity that goes on in the Todd household from time to time. You can keep that bit of the, the passage in your mind. Let me tell you about our criminal, criminal activity. In our house, there are some adults, I won't name them, who instead of taking the bins out when they are full, just try and squash more and more into it till the bags almost burst. On occasions, they do that. There is another adult who when they say they are going to wash the dishes, will wash some of the dishes, but they seem to manage to, to leave the pots unwashed on occasions, but still claim they've washed the dishes. Now, I think the dishes one isn't really a big problem, but the bin one's really bad. <laughs> on occasions, I don't want to say which one of the adults does which one, but on occasions those things happen. And when it does, it is tempting... It's tempting for the other person to respond like this. You never empty the bins. You never wash the dishes. You make it sound bigger, don't you? Just a little bit, and it it helps your your cause slightly. So you hear Eve in this part of the passage, what she says about the fruit. Did you notice that? She says about the fruit, we can't eat it and we can't even touch it. Now, if you go back and read the commandment, you can say, hang on a second, Eve. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. You can build a wee tree house in the tree if you want to. If you really want a wee tree house there, you, you're free to do that. You can have a slide coming down from it. You can do all sorts of things. You can swing a hammock in it. You can do all sorts. The only thing you can't do is, is eat the fruits. But you know what she's doing? She just exaggerated it slightly. She's revised God's word there. God said, verse 16, uh, well, she's revised God's word, but it's not the only thing she revises as you look at it carefully. Back in chapter 2, verse 16, you know, God said, you're free to eat from any tree. And it's kind of emphatic. It's more like this, surely eat from all the trees. It's like, I've never been 
But again, there's younger people in my family who've been to this restaurant called Nines in Cambridge. It's one of those kind of all-you-can-eat buffets. It's all laid out for you. Just go and help yourself to as much as you want. That's kind of what's going on. Surely eat from every tree. Eve said in 2 verse 2, we may eat from the trees. That's kind of what she's saying. Yeah, we, we can eat from the trees. God said, you must not eat from this tree. Eve said, we must not even touch it. God said, you will certainly die if you do this. It's emphatic again. Eve says, we will die. She's dropped the emphatic sense of it. You see what's happening? She's diminished the generosity. She's exaggerated the restrictions and she's softened the consequences. Oh, and that little line, that little conversation. She's begun to revise, if you like, God's words. There's a revision taking place. She's not sinned yet, but she's getting wobbly. She's wobbling, and so Satan gives her another shove. Verse five, it's a flat-out contradiction. You will, you will not certainly die, but his next move is genius. What he does next in verses five and six, he well, just hear what Eve says. Let me, let me find it. If you can read verse, uh, verse six. Do you see what the woman says? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some. Do you understand what's going on there? And what is Satan has drawn her into? He's encouraged Eve to start interpreting the world without God's words. You can just interpret these things yourself. You can figure this stuff out. So think about it this way. You come home from school, those of you who are younger, you come home from school one day, and on the table there is a massive chocolate cake. And it looks absolutely stunning. But you remember that your mum said, when you come home from school today, just remember it's your sister's birthday. And there'll be lots of special food out. Don't eat any, because it's for later. There's plenty of other stuff in the fridge. Help yourself to that. Leave this one. But knowing that, you look at it and you interpret it this way. You forget your mum's word and you interpret it this way. It, I think it'll taste good. It looks good and it'll give me some energy after a hard day working at school. Now the thing is, in some ways you're not wrong. But the reason you're not to eat it was not because it's horrible in that sense, but because it's not for you. And your mum who made it said not to. See what Eve does in verse six? You mentioned that again, she saw the fruit, was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for wisdom. She's joined the snake in thinking, I can interpret this myself, independently of God's words. I know best. She revised God's words, and now she's relegated it. She's thinking her own understanding can come above that. I can figure this stuff out for myself. Now, I think there's plenty, if you look around, there's plenty of that going on in the Church of England at the moment about all sorts of things, but particularly around this area of marriage. But let, let me just say, it's easy, it's always easy. We must think about those kind of things, but it's always easy just to point the finger out there but there's plenty of I know best right here, isn't there? You, those of you maybe who are grafted, you'll know this kind of stuff, like we all do, that God says in lots of different places in his word, gossip is not the thing to do. You're not to gossip. 
It's not the way to speak about other people. But it's easy to tell yourself, it's just banter. Just a bit of banter, the things I'm saying. And I, and I did it last week, and nothing happened. And nothing happened, and it was fun, as if God hasn't noticed. As if God isn't concerned about it. As if he doesn't say there will be consequences for this. I revise God's word, I relegate it thinking I know better. Eve revised God's word, she relegated it and then rejected it. She ate the fruit. Do you notice in verse six, the emphasis on eating. She ate it and then gave some to her husband who was there, Adam, who's right there with it, and he ate it. That's when they sinned. Look, sin is breaking God's command. You might see You might see this pathway to revising God's word, relegating it, and then rejecting it. Watch out for that. But sin is breaking God's command. You you keep that in mind. But then also think, look, what is the extent of sin? How how far does it run? Look at this with me. And think, you know the way, think of it this way. You, You know the way... Uh, watching a sporting event and something happens in it. Maybe you're watching, every, the, the play is, is going wonderful and then you see a, a player, maybe it's in football, a player just pulls up, suddenly limping. And you don't know the details yet of what's happened, but you know he's out of kind of proper action. You get that kind of thing in the story here, as we're told, told it. People are created as God's image bearers but they pull up limping in verse eight. Did you notice? Let's see what it says. Just have a look at it with me. In verse eight, it says this, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now just think about the visuals of that, given what we've been told in Genesis already. Humanity are going into hiding. The image of God starts hiding from God. The image for the world, that's what they're for, that's what we're to, to reflect God, is now hiding in the world, concealing what they should be. But the totality of the problem comes out in the details. We, we didn't read it all, but let me just mention a few things. You can glance down as well. In verse 10, you begin to notice emotions have been damaged by this sin issue. Now there's fear that's come into the world. In verse 12, speaking has been damaged by sin. Almost straight away, when God asks Adam if he's broken the command, quick as a flash, you hear what he says, the woman you put here with me. He throws his wife under the bus straight away, doesn't take responsibility. Even in how he's speaking, he starts to sin. And notice what he's doing as well. He kind of says it like this. Well, look, God, just remember, it's not so much my fault. You're the one that put the woman here with me, just saying, just saying, God, it's, it's kind of your fault that this has happened. Sinning and speaking already. You read on to verse 9, and, and the impact is there on bodies, but beyond the pain in childbirth and in work. And it says that we'll all die. Here's the reason for it. Just as God said, Eve thought that to eat the fruit was wisdom. God said it would be a disaster. And it has been. Here's the impact of sin. It just touches the whole of life in its totality. But within all of that, look, it also says the the whole orientation of life is 
is totally ruined. Let me show you, just mentioning by, by what this hints at about our hearts and, and our minds. By, by hearts, when the Bible talks about our hearts, it's not so much our emotions here. It's talking about the driving force of life, our will, the things we want to do, that we choose to do. And by the mind, that's our, our intellect, our kind of reasoning faculty. And here's what the Bible is showing us. Look, it's saying that our hearts point in the wrong direction. The driving force of life points us away from God. And just to, to show this, just, would you turn over just a couple of pages to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, where God gives an assessment of the human heart, what it's like in our orientation now. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says this, The, the Lord saw. Remember early in Genesis, we're told that, that God saw what he'd made and that it was good. Now he says this, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. Do you hear the extreme language that people you and me are being spoken about? Every inclination, only evil, all the time. You don't have a holiday from this. It doesn't ease up on a Saturday. We're willfully left to ourselves. We are willfully hostile towards God. We put on nice smiles. We might do, do nice things, but our orientation is always away from God. That's what it's saying. We want to choose our own way. We want to do our own thing, just like Adam and Eve. And because our hearts are like that, what the Bible says, our thinking becomes futile. Now, I think that can be hard to get your head around. Maybe particularly in a place like Cambridge. I mean, what do you mean our thinking's futile? Many of you are here come to this city because you've got intellectual gifts. Or growing up here with the, the kind of privileges afforded by study and all those kind of things in the schools, you're intellectually doing really well. Some of you work in medical sciences or financial services, or in engineering, or in philosophy in some branch. You, you work with intellectual leaders. What do you mean our thinking is futile? Well, let me try and explain. Look, we've already seen, haven't we, what, what Eve's beginning to do is she's beginning to think, I can interpret the world independent of what God says. I can figure it out myself. I'm smart enough to do that. But this remains God's world. So there are no independent facts. Do you understand that? There's no independent facts in this world through which neutral observers can discover the truth in any kind of ultimate sense. It's God who shapes what a thing is. It's God who gives meaning to things. And so ultimately, there's no true understanding of anything without knowing God. Do you get that? There's no true understanding of anything in the world without knowing God. You, you say, hang on. That's not right. That's not true, is it? Because every school child knows two plus two equals four. That's a fact. That is a brute, independent fact. And let me be provocative and say, no, it isn't. It really isn't. Anyone who's doing maths in that way and thinking that's a, an independent fact, they're doing that on borrowed capital that comes from God. 
because the reason it's true is because it's part of the ordered creation that God has made. And the wonder of maths, if you think it's wonderful, maybe you don't think it's very wonderful, but the wonder of maths, the order that you can see in it, even all those formulas and complicated ways, the wonder of maths is meant to lead you to worship the one who made it. And if it doesn't, you're doing maths wrong. And whatever you achieve with maths will ultimately, in this sense, be futile. And get this, that would mean, let me push this a little bit further, that would mean the eight-year-old child who loves Jesus and knows that he made maths, even though as a child they struggled to do their numbers homework, understands maths in a truer way than the atheistic maths professor who thinks there's no meaning behind the universe. Don't mishear me, I'm not saying that they can do better maths, more complicated equations, but they understand it in a truer way of what it's for and where it's meant to lead you. Look, let me try and give another little wee illustration of this between our hearts and our our thinking to to see if this lands how it works. Last summer, uh, we moved house. We moved from college fields over in Chesterton, over the north uh, of the city, uh, a little bit further over that way, and we moved into Parsonage Street, uh, just across the road from here. Shortly after the move, I was, I was out in the car, I'd been out somewhere, and I was heading home, driving brilliantly, as I always do. My brilliant driving was on display for everyone to see. I was staying in the left-hand side of the road as I drove along, perfectly, in between the lines, not straying in any way. I was staying far enough out to avoid the cyclists. Uh, Wonderful. Uh, Cyclists, when I'm driving past you, you've got plenty of space. You'll never feel threatened in any kind of way. I was doing that wonderfully. I stopped in plenty of time for all the red lights. Didn't try and sneak through them just as they were changing. Driving brilliantly. And then I turned into college fields and landed back at my old house in completely the wrong place. What happened? My driving was fine. There was nothing wrong with my, my driving as a, a driving process. No, what was wrong, if you like, was the, the internal sat-nav that I was set to was still tuned into the wrong location. And so no matter how good my driving was, I was always going to end up in the wrong location. Do you understand what the Bible is saying to us? Look, Human intellect, you might be a, a really super clever person, you hear this, and even for those of us who are not at that level, the Bible is saying, look, human intellect works fine as a reasoning tool in that kind of way. Like driving skills, we can figure out all sorts of things, all sorts of wonderful things. The problem is now because of sin, our hearts are set to the wrong home location. And no matter what people work out, we will use it in a way that leads us away from God, not towards him. Sin has, has ruined life totally in that way. It's what Paul said in our second reading in Ephesians. You don't need to turn to it, but just listen as I read this again with that in mind. Paul says this, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Do you hear that double problem? Do you hear the double problem that's mentioned there? Hard hearts towards God, a hostility towards Him 
it leads to wrong ways of thinking. Sin ruins the orientation of life totally, and that is our orientation, our nature, or the nature we've inherited from Adam. All of humanity is totally fallen in Adam. Sin ruins life totally. We've got to understand that. It's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? We live and we function in all sorts of ways, but the Bible needs us to hear, look, sin ruins us in this way. And it's not saying that because it wants to leave us miserable and just going around depressed all the time. It's saying that because unless we understand it, you'll not come for the solution that God has for us, the thing that we need more than anything else. What's the solution? that the Bible would say to us, we need the new sinless man. That's what we need. You read Genesis 3, the consequences of sin, and you realize, this is saying, look, you, you can't talk your way out of this because our, even our speaking is ruined by sin. You can't think your way out of it. Our intellect is gonna go in the wrong way. You can't live long enough to, to outlive this problem because we're gonna die one day. Sin ruins us totally. It brings us under God's judgment. What do we need? Back in Genesis 3, I don't know, well, we didn't read on to verse 15, but let me tell you this. Back in Genesis 3, if you read carefully, you will notice that alongside Eve, there are two men who have encounters with the snake. Two men. The first is Adam. The second is in verse 15. Just have a look at it. God says to the snake in verse 15 of chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now there's another person there that's been spoken about. Notice it's singular, it's one person. And that it's a he, this will be another son who will come. The promised solution from the consequences of sin is not for Adam to try harder. In other words, the solution is not just in us. It's not just try harder and you can be better at this. We need a new man. One who instead of following the snake's lies and disobeying God, will obey God and crush the snake's head. At one tree in the Garden of Eden, Adam disobeyed God and threw life away for himself and for everyone. At another tree, the Bible says, outside Jerusalem, Jesus Christ obeyed his Father and gave his life away for you in order to bring forgiveness and new life. It's a life that begins, get this, even back to what Genesis has been telling us, it's a life that begins by trusting his words about his saving grace. He puts a feast before you and says, come and enjoy all of this in me. And it's a life that continues that way. His word will soften your heart to love God and will begin to help us think straight. We're going to pause there. Let's have a moment to pray. The musicians are going to come back up because we're sing, we'll sing in a moment. But let's have a moment just for your own reflections and maybe to pray before God. Maybe you've not thought about God's word this way. 
And maybe you've not thought about your need for the Savior in this way. So just take a moment uh, to pray yourself in response to God, and then I'll lead us.